Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would. Now I guarantee that every pastor across America is titling their sermon, 2020 Vision. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, because I'm a rebel. Rather, I'd like to talk today about refreshing our faith, our obedience, and our love to God. You know, it is the new year, and often this is the time of the year when we talk about what are the decisions I need to make. Okay, so we have all this clutter from this past year, maybe, and we start thinking, how can I reorganize? How can I revitalize my life? Some people go on a diet this time of the year for about two or three weeks, <laughs> and then it drops off. And then you gain all that weight, and then you decide the next year that you'll lose it all again, you know, just the cycle, right? I know the cycle very well. Um, and other life changes that sometimes we decide that we're going to make because it's a new year, and it's, it's the concept of the new things and, and renewing and refreshing. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing because we need reminders in our life to refresh, to rethink, to regroup. Because uh, sometimes things get out of hand and we need to, you know, huddle again. <laughs> you know, get back. What's the game plan? We need to hear from our coach and say, okay, what are we, what are we doing wrong? What do we need to do in this next play? Um, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit today. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to offer some practical advice as far as things maybe we need to think about for the coming year. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Read with me if you would. Hebrews 10, verse 19. The scriptures say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the beautiful things that you have given to us in your word. I pray that we would love them, that we would cherish them. I pray that they would nourish us, body and soul, and that they would become part of us. Lord, open our eyes to see the things that you'd like us to see today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the author of Hebrews, if you've ever done a study or just even read through the book of Hebrews, it doesn't take long to notice that he uses a lot of Old Testament imagery. Um, that's kind of his point. He's trying to, in the book of Hebrews, one of the main goals that the author has is to show us how much better Jesus is than the old sacrificial law and ceremonial laws. One of the, great, one of the prime um, goals is that Jesus is a better priest than all of the priests, in, according to the Old Testament law, than the Aaronic and the Levit Levitical priesthood. He's better than all of that because of his, his eternal sacrifice. And in, in this passage, he starts off with a little bit of imagery, right? He says, therefore, in verse 19, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... So he's talking about the holy places, okay? He's talking, these are, this is speech 
that draws our minds to the temple where people would come to worship, where the people of God would come to worship. Now, he's talking about the holy places. Now, let me just jump real quick to the, the primary holy place that is on his mind, because he says in verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Now, there was a most holy place in the temple that had a curtain, a big, heavy, thick curtain that people just were not allowed to walk into. It was the most holy place that the high priest could enter once a year to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And if he entered the most holy place with any spot or blemish, with any insincerity or anything that he had not been cleansed of, then he would die. In fact, they would put bells on the bottom of his robe and they would tie a rope to his foot and he went, entered into this most holy place. In case he was struck dead, nobody would have to go into it and retrieve the body. They could pull him out with a rope. <laughs> and if those bells stopped jingling, that means he must have had some impurity. God struck him dead because he was not worthy to enter into the most holy place beyond the curtain. And he's, he's bringing forth an image here of entering since we brothers have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He's starting off by saying we have confidence to enter such a place, such a place that people just, you know, in the Old Testament, you just did not just enter <laughs> willy nilly. In fact, if you if it was your turn to go into the most holy place, it wasn't you were a little, you probably had a little bit of a of anxiety. <laughs> it's like, man, what if I was impure? What if there was something that I didn't cleanse? What if I didn't offer the right sacrifice or did it wrongly? Or what if that lamb or goat had some sort of blemish on it that I couldn't see? I'm going to die because I don't deserve to enter this holy place. But he is saying here, we have confidence to enter the holy places. Why? Because we have the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. We don't have to wonder, is there something that is left undone? Sometimes we walk around trying to live our lives with rules and regulations and, and traditions because we're trying to make sure all the corners are covered. We don't want to miss anything. We're almost like the pagans in Athens um, when Paul arrived on the scene and they had all these gods scattered around the, what, what do they call it? I can't remember the Praetorian or something like that. I can't remember the name. But then there was, a, there was an idol there that was addressed to the unknown god. You know, it, was, it didn't have a name. It was just in case they missed one, right? They had all these gods. They tried to think of any god that there might possibly be in the universe and they all had names, Right? But then there was one that was for the unknown God because they didn't want to miss something, right? They didn't want to offend some God who was going to curse them by not giving him an idol that could be worshipped, right? Sometimes we're like that in our lives. We have all these rules, all these regulations, all these standards, all these things in our life because we think it's up to us to have all the corners covered, right? We don't want to miss something, so we live such ultra-conservative lives for our own sake, because we don't feel like Jesus really cleansed everything. So we have to make sure all the corners are covered so that we can be pure. 
But here, I'm not, I'm not against standards. I'm not against having traditions and rules for yourself because sometimes they're really good, you know. Sometimes those things are necessary, especially if there's an area of our life where we are constantly sinning. It's nice to put something there, right, to help us. I'm not against those things. But what I am against is a lack of confidence or a misplaced confidence. Here, the author of Hebrews is telling us that we have confidence. We don't have to enter into God's presence with anxiety or wondering, does he, is, does he accept me? Or when, when I die, will he accept me? I wonder, did I do everything right? Did I, did I have the right things in place? You know, when, we, when somebody sees death knocking on the door, on the door of their life, one of the first things they want to do is get their house in order, right? To make sure all the things are in place so that when they're gone, everything will be good. Sometimes we live our life like that, trying to get everything in place so that we can have confidence to enter into the presence of God. So that, you know, St. Peter will let us into the pearly gates. You know, that's kind of picture, right? So we try to orchestrate our lives so that we can have some sort of confidence that God will let us in when we get there. That is paganism. That is anti-biblical. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. Because it leads us away from the blood of Christ. Anything that, draw, anything that distracts us from Jesus Christ is the spirit of the Antichrist. Peter said that the spirit of the Antichrist is here now. It's not coming. It's here now. The spirit of the Antichrist is here. It's amongst us. And it's anything that draws our attention away from Jesus Christ. He's saying here we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new. Okay, new, right? He's talking, Jesus is different than the old covenants of the old ceremonial law, the old sacrificial system. That's the old way that has been fulfilled in Christ by the new and the living way. Okay, he had, he had talked a little bit about earlier that, you know, priests, they live and they die just like everybody else. That's why they are insufficient to save us because they are not enduring. Therefore, their work is not enduring. It has to constantly be done. But Jesus is a new and living way. He, you know, we just say he ever lives. Uh, what's the? What, how did it go? He ever lives above for me to intercede, right? That we just sang that, and that is that is one of my favorite hymns, to be honest. What? Here, do you remember what page that was on? I want to I want to look it up. Two forty six. Arise, my soul, arise. Let me just read a line from that. So, and really, he's. <laughs> In this hymn, he really captures a lot of this. The, the verse number one, Arise, my soul, arise. Instead, you know, lift up your drooping hands, is also from Hebrews. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. Okay, he's trying to give us confidence to draw near. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. Okay, see so how he ever lives above, right? He is standing in the presence of God. In, in the, before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Verse 2, he ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race. His blood atoned for all our race. Sprinkles now the throne of grace. Sprinkling being a symbol of cleansing. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, 
Oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. We enter confidently into the presence of God because Jesus is the one telling the Father, I shed my blood for them. They are clean. There is no impurity in them that would disqualify them from becoming into your presence. We don't always feel that way. Sometimes we feel quite the opposite. But the way God looks at us because of the blood of Jesus is clean and pure. And it says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Okay, So the curtain is what divided the rest of the temple from the most holy place. When Jesus was crucified, when he breathed his last, the curtain tore in two. The visible um, representation to all Jews that something big just happened. This separation between man and God has been destroyed. Because Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. So that we can, anytime, enter into the presence of God. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now these were these sprinkling and the cleansing. These were all used for a symbol of cleansing of sin. In the Old Testament. So he's telling us here. That we can have assurance because we have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water. This does not mean we're supposed to go around sprinkling each other. He's telling us this is all imagery from the Old Testament. Okay, uh, We need to track with that. This is all imagery from the Old Testament that has been fulfilled in the blood of Jesus. Jesus, his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood is like the sprinkling and the washing that was part of the ceremonial ritualism of the Old Testament that stood for cleansing. We have been cleansed by Jesus Christ. You know, this, you know the, per, the author of Hebrews is not giving us a way to hold a church service. We're not supposed to sprinkle one another because this is all imagery. He's, all, he's, point, he's relating Jesus to things that have been fulfilled in the Old Testament by the sacrifice of Jesus. That the very nature of something being fulfilled means you don't have to keep doing it. That's the whole point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. You don't have to keep doing it because Jesus fulfilled it. That's why he's talking about it. We don't have to keep doing stuff ritualistically because we have put our faith and our confidence in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So you have a promise made by somebody who is faithful. Now when somebody that you know is faithful makes you a promise, do you worry whether or not they're going to see it through? 
Now, I can see if somebody makes a promise, but they have a long track record of not keeping promises, yeah, then you kind of worry whether or not they're going to follow through, right? <laughs> but if there's somebody, you know, even one of your friends or relatives, they are, you know that they are faithful, they are reliable, you, can, you have always been able to count on them, and then they make you a promise, you can rest, you can relax, because you know, even this human, per, this human friend or family member, you know that they're going to follow it through. Because they've given, they've, they've, they have a track record of always being faithful. This is, I mean, now God, say it's say, He who promised is faithful. Therefore, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We don't have to wonder, is, this, is, is Christ's sacrifice sufficient or not? I don't know. Because I read these books and I hear, hear other people say stuff about how you still need to you know, do things to be saved. I just wonder, is, was Jesus enough? We don't have to wonder because the one who made the promise to us is faithful. He's, Jesus is faithful, even though you don't feel like that. Even though sometimes you're going through a period of life where it's like, man, I, I just don't know if this stuff is legit or not. Well, regardless of how you feel, God is faithful. He made you a promise. If you, Whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's a promise that God has made to us. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's a promise made by God to mankind. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish. That's a promise. But will have everlasting life. That's another promise made by God who is faithful. You don't have to wonder if he's going to follow through with that. So he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And now he goes on to how we therefore live our lives. So one, we start with a place of confidence. I know I'm cleansed. I know I'm clean. I know God accepts me because of the blood of Jesus and not because I have formatted my life in perfection. That's not why God accepts me, because of the way I've formatted my life. God accepts me because of the way Jesus died and rose again. So we start with confidence in my own relationship with God. And then we move on to verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. None of that is worthwhile if you don't already have confidence before God. Because if you don't have confidence before God, you know what's going to happen? The, the, the ways you show love and the good works that you use, they're all going to be for you. They're all going to be ways that you are trying to cleanse yourself. They're all going to be ways that you try to fix yourself and become an acceptable person to God. That's what happens if you don't start with confidence. You have to start with confidence in the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't have that 100% guaranteed, your good works are going to be about you. Ultimately, eventually, at some point, you will start, you know, believing that when I enter the presence of God, he's going to look at my life and say, you're acceptable because of these things. And that's just what's going to happen. So we start with confidence in the blood of Jesus, and then we move on to stirring up the whole. I mean, this is a picture of a body being stirred up. Because we're all stirring one another up to loving and, and, and good works. And we'll get back to that in a second. And he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's walk through this a little bit, okay? Not neglecting to meet together, okay? So that's the body of Christ just coming together. That's, and I wanna, I want, we need to be careful here, okay? This is not necessarily saying you're fulfilling this by simply coming to church. Though that is part of the process. I mean, we have a tradition of coming to church on Sundays, which is a great tradition, and it makes it a, an opportune time where people are usually free to come and be together. It's great. We love it. And that does partially fulfill this. But he's not necessarily saying you need to go to all the church service. He's saying don't neglect to be together as a body of Christ because you're a family. You are a body. You should want to be together. And he's saying don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Okay, so the habit of some was, you know what? You know, because I love Jesus, I don't really need anybody else. I mean, that's common around the United States and around the world. You know, Jesus, all I have is God. I have his Bible. I don't need anybody else. Every People are so unreliable. People are hypocrites, you know, and uh, I just don't need them. So I'm just going to be content with Jesus and my Bible, and I don't need, to, I don't need anybody else in my life. That is not um, the way that God wants us to live our lives. People will always, there will always be unreliable people in every church. Sometimes it's your pastor. Sometimes, it, yeah. Sometimes it's your, your friends. Sometimes it's, you know, that other person who you don't really know that well, but they're there in your church. People are unreliable, and there are lots of hypocrites around. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to tell you that everybody that you know is not a hypocrite. You're the one with the mental problem. I'm not going to say that because there are plenty of hypocrites and unreliable people around that hurt us. But we are not to use that as an excuse to not love one another and to be together and to try to build each other up. You know why those people are hypocrites? Probably because there's nobody in their life showing them the right way. You know why somebody's unreliable? Because they haven't learned anything. Maybe, the, maybe all they learned from their childhood was unreliability. Maybe their parents were unreliable. That's all they know. It's okay to back out of promises because that's what everybody does to me. Maybe that's their life. And they need somebody in their life to build them up. That's why he says, he's not, you know, he says, and I like how he words verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. He doesn't necessarily say, devote yourself to love and good works. He's saying, let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Because we're a family. And there are people around us that we're really bad at this, and we need to help them, and they need to help us. He's wording it in such a way to, to reveal to us a communal, the communal will of God for his people. To be part of a community where everybody is working together, helping each other where we fall short. That's why we cannot neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. But, okay, so here's that word but shows a contrast, right? It's one or the other. Okay, so... Sometimes we take great pride that I'm in every single service at church, but what's the contrast? Okay, so you meet that part, but he says the way to fulfill the will of God is to not just show up, but encouraging one another. The will of God is not to just show up, but to show up with an ambition to see each other thrive in the will of God. You know, God does not want us all to be pew sitters and just learn from pastor. 
We're supposed to be building each other up. That's the way of God. You know, we all have abilities. If I were to ask any one of you to come up and preach a sermon, a couple of you have done it before, and they would be, you know, okay. But most of you would be like, no way, that's not my gift. <laughs> that's not what God wants me to do. And you'd probably be right, because God doesn't want everybody to be a preacher. But God, God also wants people in our churches who are hospi have hospitality, generosity, ser a ser servant mindset. We need administrators and leaders. You know, there are all sorts of ways that God has built the body to knit together to meet one another's needs. Right? You know, the very first thing that the church did was the you know, people who had lots of properties, they sold them so that they could have money to give to the poor. That was people who, who, had, who were generous and met needs in a church that were there. And there are plenty, well, you know, the apostles were preaching and teaching, and everybody else was serving one another in different ways, right? These are different ways that we are to encourage and help each other thrive in the house of God. And he says, and all the more as you see the day approaching. He is calling us to perseverance. You know that passage that Rich read, 2 Peter chapter 3, and, I, and I'm afraid that sometimes we can lack perseverance, we can grow lazy in our Christian walk because we can, we can take upon ourselves the mindset of 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 14, and he says, this is now the second letter I, that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Okay, so he's doing the will of God and stirring up people to help people to not be lazy, to get people going, right? Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, we read in the scriptures that God is supposed to be making everything new, but everything looks pretty old still. There is still rampant sin everywhere. Things don't seem to be getting better. And you can kind of understand where they're coming from. When in verse 5 it says, For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, talking about the Noahic flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that, are, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, So there's a day coming when God is going to bring about a full, complete renewal of all things, a rejuvenation of life and creation. In verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, let's just stop there for the sake of time. So he's saying God is still reliable. You can count on what the Bible says about him. You know what? Things still are very messed up in the world. And we just want, you know, the problem of evil. If God, then how, why evil? You know, things like that. But Peter is reminding us, God is a patient God. How many, you know, how long, you know, we don't really know exactly how long between Adam and Eve and the Noah's flood. There are predictions and things like that. We don't really know exactly how long that was. But all we know is wickedness was running rampant. And it's really returning to that in the world today. 
where wickedness is running rampant, even though we have promises in the scriptures that say God is supposed to renew everything, well, God is not forgetting his promise. He, you know, the, as 2 Peter is telling us, he has a time already set when his promise will be clearly seen to all. But remember, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. He is a patient God. Time means nothing to him. He has a plan. He is fulfilling his plan. Part of the reason he delays is because he is bringing in the harvest of souls that should be saved. So he, you know, he does say later on that count his patience as salvation. The longer he waits, the more chance there are for people to come to Christ. Even though we have the sin going on all around us, there will, God has not forgotten. We read in the Psalms this morning that God is faithful. He stands up for justice and righteousness and he hears the cry of the afflicted. He hears it. He knows it. He knows everything that's going on in the world. You know, we can still trust him. And he's and relating this back to Hebrews chapter 10, he, we are called to perseverance. Don't give up. Don't become slack concerning his promises. Be zealous. For good works because your work is not in your labor is not in vain in the Lord even though it may seem like it's in vain it all counts for something in God's mind and in God's will and plan even though we don't know exactly what and in Colossians chapter 3 I'm going to read Colossians chapter 3 just a few verses here starting in verse 12 Very clear instructions how God wants us to persevere in this life, to persevere in our faith, to not grow lazy, to not grow isolated, to not become an island all out there all by yourself. If we are following New Testament commands, we cannot become an island because nearly every single command that is given to us by the apostles has something to do with interactive relationships. You can't fulfill the will of God and be an island. You may abstain from a bunch of different kinds of sins, but you cannot fulfill the active will of God. And look at verse 12. Put on then as chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a lot of instruction in that short passage, but almost all of it revolves around oneness of a body, the interactions between people. You cannot... Love without interactions. You cannot be compassionate without interactions. You cannot humble yourself without interactions. You cannot be kind without interactions. You cannot forgive without interactions. You cannot be bound together without interactions. Um, 
You cannot teach or admonish without interactions. You cannot, okay, and this is pretty funny. In the middle of verse 16, it says, singing psalms, hymns, <clears throat> here, let's see here. Let it, let, verse, start at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I mean, this is something that is supposed to be done together. And then another translation said, actually translates this as singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Um, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, another translation says. Um, we're supposed to be singing to each other. Isn't that kind of funny? We should have singspirations. We should do that. We should come to each other's houses and sing together. Paul did it in prison. Why can't we do it in our own houses? You know? So for the sake of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump here. There's plenty more we could talk about, and I could go through this passage again and point these out. But in these passages, I have a list here of ten things, perhaps, that might make their way into your resolutions this year from these passages. One, maybe you need to read your Bible some more because you aren't really coming into the presence of God. So maybe you need to read your Bible and pray some more than you were last year. I'm not going to tell you what plan to go on. There are plans out there that are helpful. But we can confidently draw, draw near to the presence of God. And one of the active ways we can do that on a daily basis is through the Word of God and through prayer. So maybe you were really horrible this last year at reading the Scriptures, trying to know God through the Scriptures. And maybe some of that is because you don't feel worthy to come into His presence. You are, if you have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You can have confidence in that. Maybe you need to work on your confidence. Go through the, you can do that by going to the Scriptures and seeing what the Scriptures say about you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You are a son and daughter of God. You are fully accepted. You're the apple of his eye. Maybe you need to work on your confidence. But you do that through eating your scriptures and praying. Do you need to pray some? Maybe you need to pray differently. Maybe you need to pray more fervently. Maybe you need to spend more time. Focus, you know, push yourself to pray for 15 minutes in one stretch rather than shotgun prayers throughout the day. Shotgun prayers throughout the day are great. I do that too. But sometimes we need to just sit and devote ourselves to prayer. And when I do that, it is way different than shotgun prayers. It's way different. You get way deeper. And you can really start to see the Spirit speaking to you. Maybe we need to make regular visits to one another. In, or at least start with regular church interaction rather than, you know, popping in a little late, leaving a little bit early. You know, stick around, chat. Fellowship, because that's what God wants for us. We, God wants us to fellowship. That's part of our spiritual growth. You know, it's bet you know, we, from a teacher's perspective. Is it you know how many you know we got teachers in here? Is it good for the development of a child for them to always be alone? No, it's not. They need interactions. They need interactive play. They need to be part of a you know part of a group for to help their development. Because if they are, if they socially speaking, if they're always by themselves, alone, locked in a room, or whatever, they, you know, when they get older, they have some social limitations. We are supposed to grow as a group together. We're supposed to interact together. So maybe one of our resolutions is have more regular interaction with God's people. 
whether it's through making more visits to one another or just sticking around for fellowship at church. Maybe a resolution you want to make is, let's sing more. Let's make music a priority. Let's worship together in song. Let's get to each other's houses, not for a Bible study necessarily, but for singspirations, to sing hymns like the ones we sang today. A couple of those hymns were a couple of my favorites. I loved them. Maybe we need to sing more good songs together so that we can be built up with these um, God-word um, songs. Maybe, maybe you need to forgive somebody. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you have refused to forgive because of the hurt. But maybe this year you're going to work on forgiving them. Maybe you need to reconcile a broken relationship. Maybe you need to at least take steps towards it. And your reconciliation takes two people. But maybe you know that you need to take a step towards reconciliation with that person because it's been far too long. You know, it's amazing when you talk to people that sometimes every once in a while in conversation, something comes up that reveals that they've been holding a grudge for 30 years. They refuse to reconcile. Maybe you need to reconcile one of those relationships because that's the will of God. Maybe you need to choose thankfulness rather than discontentment and complaining. Do you find yourself always pointing out the negatives? Do you find yourself always talking about what you're worried about and what might go wrong? Do you find yourself just being an overly negative person? Maybe you should work on becoming thankful. When you feel like complaining or saying something negative about somebody or something, maybe you need to stop, you know, purposefully stop yourself and think about the good. Thank God for something. Work on being thankful. Maybe that's one of your resolutions you need to make. Maybe you need to be more aware of the needs of others. You know, stirring one another, stirring up one another to love and good works. You can only stir one another up to love and good works if you are aware of the needs of other people. Maybe you need to work on being more aware of other people's needs rather than complaining about your own needs and wishing somebody would serve you. Because if we all were aware of each other's needs, then we would be serving each other and nobody would be left behind. But if we're all focused on our own needs, then we don't see other people's needs and therefore we don't fulfill them. Just like in a marriage relationship, we're supposed to serve one another, and that's how we're both fulfilled, rather than trying to take from one another, and therefore we're both empty. As a church, as a body, we're supposed to be in the, habit in the habitual process of always serving one another, trying to fulfill one another's needs in one way or another. Be aware of the needs and resolve to help bear more burdens. Rather, I mean, we need to pray for each other. I'm not putting down prayer, but sometimes prayer is a cop-out from actually doing something helpful. I'm going to pray for them, but I'm not going to help them. We don't say the, the last part, but that's how we act. You know, we might as well have said it, because we don't actually help. But we'll pray. I know that I could help them at least come by and say hey and try to encourage them, but I'm not going to do that. I'll just sit back and pray. You might as well not even pray if you're not willing to help. Just like the, you know, the um, Good Samaritan, you know, what if that good Samaritan just said, saw that person over there and like, oh, I'll pray for you, and then went about their business, <laughs> but didn't help them? That wouldn't make for a very good story, <laughs> right? Unless you're trying to rebuke somebody. But the man helped him. He, didn't act, he actually didn't pray for him in the story. He just helped him. 
Maybe, verse, or number, you know, this is the ninth. I haven't been numbering them out loud, but on my list, this is the ninth thing. Maybe you need to devote yourself to some Bible memorization so that you can always carry it around with you. Maybe you're so busy that you can't you know, always sit down and read the Bible. Well, if you have it in your head, you can read the Bible. <laughs> maybe you need to devote yourself to some Bible memory. And number 10, last thing, maybe you need to devote yourself to some Bible study. Maybe you've been learning it from some other people, from your pastor, or maybe you just, you have your, you know, five-minute devotions every morning or whatever, but maybe you need to study and actually get in there, spend some time and put some, and labor over it. Um, there's a scripture passage that says, study to show yourself approved unto God, uh, workmen, should, workmen that need not be ashamed. Well, the word for study actually means to labor. Labor over the word so that you can know it and make it part of yourself. So we're supposed to not just read it, but we're supposed to get into it, right? Find out what the meaning is in there. Get, squeeze out the goodness, the richness of God's word. So perhaps something that I've said stuck out to you. Perhaps you already have things that you know you need to work on that I didn't talk about. Great. Let's live Godward life. You know, the method, way back in the day, I don't even remember the years, but the Methodist, the Methodist Church started the tradition of New Year's resolutions way like 100 years ago or something. I don't know, maybe even longer. But they started it, and the way they did it was they would encourage their members to devote themselves to Christ in some way in the following year. That's where New Year's resolutions came about. Now the whole nation does New Year's resolutions, but it usually has nothing to do with Jesus has more to do with health and wealth and happiness and that kind of stuff. Let's devote ourselves to Jesus this year. Let's, you know, go on your diet. Sure, that's fine. That's great. Make these important life things that help help us live uh, more fruitfully and more happily. But don't forget Jesus. Don't forget the body and our obligations to it. Don't forget to love one another. Make something like that, part of your goals for this year. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for giving us guidance and not just leaving us with no instructions. I pray that we would be humble servants who are willing to take the barking orders from our master and actually obey them, rather than just considering them as options for how I want to live my own life. For we are dead and have been risen with Christ. Lord, give us that humble servant mindset. In Jesus' name, amen.